This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. Now, I don't even know where to start with summing up this week's segment with my colleagues Liam Proud in London, John Foley and Annie Szymanski in New York. They've been covering this wacky situation where a company called GameStop, that by all rights looks to be going out of business, has shot absolutely through the moon. In what looks like a form of financial market populism, it appears the little guys, as it were, are sticking it to the big guys by using options to pump up the game retailer's shares, then forcing the big investors betting against it to go out and buy the stock and cover their mm, positions. It's not an isolated incident either. Something's happening in Europe as well, and somebody is definitely going to get hurt. That's the one thing I can guarantee you. After that, I chat with Jeff Goldfarb, our Asia editor in Melbourne, about Australia's attempts to hold the first Tennis Grand Slam tournament of the year, and a spat brewing between the government and Google, which may actually go global. Give a listen. GameStop Corporation, I would have thought that this was a, a company going towards bankruptcy, something like um, Radio Shack, because one day nobody's going to go to stores, like a blockbuster video, who goes there, it's dead. Yet somehow in the last five days, the stock has gone from $39 to $327. Uh, it's now worth $23 billion. John Foley, what on earth is happening? This is, um, this is an example of the market losing its tiny mind. The stock was at more than 150% on Wednesday morning. This was a company that was worth about $1.5 billion a couple of weeks ago, and now it's worth more than $25 billion. Uh, but what it is is still what it is, which is, as you say, it's like an it's it's a it's a retailer that sells video games basically and is struggling to survive um, in a world where people aren't really going to real stores to buy real world video games. So so what? But that's obviously but what's not- happening is it's a market, it's a giant market speculative fervor of some sort that's related to shorts. Explain it's a meme. It's a meme stock, right? So you had you had a situation where some hedge funds were shorting this company. The, the, the short position was huge, bigger than the actual number of shares available um, in, in the world anywhere. Um, and you also had a short seller, like a researcher, who was coming out with this powerful case about why the company was, was going to go down the toilet called Citroen Research. Then suddenly this kind of group of scrappy, um, you know, armchair traders through forums like Reddit started buying into the stock and buying through, particularly through um, call options, which means that you can, you know, get the full upside of a share going up, but you don't have to put down all the money up front. So, so but basically what happens then is you buy an option, a, long, a longer dated option to buy the stock at a much higher price and it's, caught, it's out of the money big time. So it doesn't yeah. cost much, but somewhere along the way, the, the security has to be bought against that option, which means someone's buying the stock price. Exactly. Just, just like when when you short it, someone is, you know, there is a, yeah. there is an underlying transaction in the shares, mostly, not always. Um, and so so there, is, there are these huge, like, tectonic plates of shares in GameStop that are kind of moving around beneath the surface as these folks on Reddit, you know, pile, pile on their call options. And, and as you get, you know, a squeeze, effectively, the stock just 
soars. And at some point, in theory, this all comes to an end and the stock falls again, unless you know the company really is worth $25 billion. But in the meantime, it can go on for longer than, and these things always go on for longer than people thought. So again, today, you know, yesterday, the stock lost a bit. And we thought, oh, this is all over. Now it's it's shooting up again. And people are still now t- like asking to buy calls. But there is sort of like almost office. a populist element here, right? And I mean, there's sort of like this, these, as, as John describes them, these sort of armchair Robin Hoods, probably using the Robin Hood platform, are basically taking their revenge on on the big hedge funds, the big bad establishment that's out there uh, beating up stocks like GameStop. I mean, it's almost like it's like the it's populism, is it not in a sort of weird way? It, It is kind of like a electronic form of populism. Now, whether that's warranted against short sellers is another question as there's nothing wrong with short sellers pointing out that a weak company is weak. It's how the market However, works. There are different exactly, views. <laughs> exactly. You know, shorting stocks has existed as long as going long stocks. But I do think that what these Wall Street bets types often like to do is exploit what they perceive of as market holes, like loopholes in the market where they see that they can take advantage in a way that institutional investors are not and that they can one up these people who make a lot of money saying that, you know, they are creating all this value. And then you have these guys on the sideline who can be like, well, look at this. And and, and look, I, I think that in a world of extreme income inequality, especially in a this, you know, since the pandemic where we have this K-shaped recovery and certain people are doing extremely well and a lot of people are doing not that well, it's, it's reasonable that people may want to push a little bit at some of the wealthy, but whether that serves any real purpose or is warranted is a separate question. And it's just, uh, it's just bring Liam Proud in. Liam, you're in London. We've also seen some evidence sort of this game is also being played out in in Europe, no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's worth pointing out. It's, you know, it's an old game. Like we saw this in Europe about a decade ago. Volkswagen, the car maker, briefly became the largest company in the world because there was a short squeeze. Um, And it's 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 usually a quite an isolated phenomenon, though, right? You you need quite a, a large combination of factors for it to work. You need, you know, either thin liquidity or an extremely kind of unusual high degree of investor coordination. Um, but the strange thing that's, that's happening at the moment is, particularly in European stocks, it's just any heavily shorted stock now. People seem to be kind of second guessing what the Reddit crowd is going to do. Um, and I think it's spreading to kind of hedge funds themselves, you know, who were initially the targets of this and now saying, Hang on, we can like front run what the the next short squeeze is going to or be. Or you so can even just, start it. You could even or I, we can I start it. Yeah. Episode of Billions, an Axe Capital moment where you get a bunch of interns to get on Reddit and start targeting a bunch of short stocks with lots of short interest and create a bunch of avatars on Reddit and then start start a swarm. No, I mean that could be that could be absolutely. The, yeah, and, and and it's very hard to kind of. You know, at, at some point, as Anna and John said, you know, you, you assume reality kicks back in. But, you know, o- over the long run, you know, who, who, who's going to be around long enough in the, lo- in the long run? You're gonna, you could lose a lot of money between now and then. Um, right. And there's no real relation to the to the kind of fundamentals here. So it's really about, you know, 
price discovery and and whether the kind of basic market mechanism happens when you've got such huge gushes of liquidity that move around. But you know, one, one of the things that's going to go ahead, John. Um, one of the one of the questions that's obviously already starting to bubble up is, you know, is the are we going to have to regulate things differently? Is this dangerous? Should we do anything about it? And you can argue, and I would argue that, you know, kind of who cares really? Who cares what happens to game, you know, GameStop shares? No one's really getting that badly hurt by this. But you, you, we've all talked about like this being like a game, and that is actually the really interesting problem here is that trading has become like a game and Robinhood, which is also obviously often associated with some of these kind of lurches in the market, it's kind of app that retail investors love, has been criticized by regulators in the US for specifically gamifying trading, making it into a game with some of the same techniques that gaming companies use to kind of keep you hooked. And I think you're seeing now like a new dimension to that idea that trading is really just a, a game and, and, and the companies are facilitating that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think often what causes these things to really reverse is obviously when people start to lose money, and then more people start piling out, and more people lose money. One of the things that's been interesting in the whole Wall Street bets phenomena, and this, I mean, this actually started before the pandemic, was that you often actually will have some of these guys, and they're mostly guys, show screenshots of their losses and almost you know, joke around about how much money they've lost. It, it is this this idea that this is all just mm. a game. And that then raises the question of, you know, how how does this how does this end? Well, I mean, it probably ends with a lot a lot of Robin Hood bros are gonna get hosed in the end. No. I mean, this they're gonna someone's gonna be left holding the bag. And I'm guessing it's not gonna be the big hedge funds. No, most likely. I mean, and I do think that your your you know your market makers, your citadels and Susquehannas of the world are going to figure out a way to come to make money from all of this interest in options trading, which they already are. But they're obviously going to shift prices in such a way that it's going to be better for them and not as good for these guys buying all of these options. Yeah. What what happens? What, we've also got a couple of. Of Pied Pipers here to mix our uh, British f- folks folk stories. I mean, you've got Elon Musk, Chamath Palihapitiya, who have kind of been out there. It seems sort of ginning up the Reddit crowd. What's going on there, Anna? Well, I mean, part of it is, I mean, Elon Musk has a long history of not being a huge fan of shorts in general. So, you know, I, I think there there may be some interest in, you know, again, like sticking it to people who they perceive of as, you know, not being helpful to people who are trying to build companies. Um, you know, and, and look, there, there was actually a small real world change that did start all of this, which was that some new board members joined the board for GameStop with the idea of, actually maybe being able to improve this company obviously not to (laughs) the justify the valuations we are currently seeing but you know i i I really do think though it probably mostly goes back to the fact that people who run companies often aren't huge fans of short sellers yeah but they have a a purpose they do have have a a very real purpose i think we do not want a market where we do not have active short sellers that is a very very um, dangerous market, yeah. especially with so, as much liquidity as we have sloshing around right now. And some of these people are going to be pretty close to the brink anyway, right? I mean, if you look at the the, the returns for short 
seller specialists last year were absolutely horrific. Um, you know, which they always will be in a in a in a in a rising market. But um, if you're now seeing retail traders explicitly going after individual funds, Melvin Capital, you know, um, right. had to take a bunch of money the other day. Um, it's it's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to see anyone opening up new short positions at the moment, I think, because you know what's going to happen. A bunch of people on Reddit will look at the short interest, say, hang on, this is the new this is the new target. We pile into it. Um, but I mean, so Italy and also, yeah. the, the, the fact that as you, you've written that this is now reaching European stocks is interesting because the Americans have tended to be quite hands off about shorting. But the Europeans are very much not hands off about this. It's the European regulators that have tried to block, you know, ban short selling during COVID um, most recently. Uh, whereas the Americans really tend to not do that. And, you know, the SEC has generally said, let the market be. But now that we're seeing these short squeezes in Europe, that's where some of the you know, political angst is really? going to manifest. Imagine. Reddit is doing European government's jobs for it. So there you go. All right. Well, guys, I, this is fascinating. Go ahead, Anna. You close. I, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I do think that the really interesting thing will be what the regulatory reaction is, because most likely, if there is one, it will be related to a lot of this options. Trading. And I think that could actually have a bigger impact because you've had a ton of options trading volume in a lot of the biggest companies in the world. So if regulators start to crack down on that, maybe there could be an actual like bigger market impact. All right, well, let's see. Thank you guys again. And uh, let's see what happens. We've got, let's see who's next. GameStop today, if only Radio Shack were still out there. Greetings, Jeff, down under. How's uh, the summer in Melbourne? It's getting hot. It's getting hot, both in temperature and story-wise. Yeah, no, no kidding. Well, it's snowing here in Switzerland, but yeah, you've got some pretty hot stories in the last week. Let's uh, tick through them. The first, of course, is uh, is kind of resonating around the world, and this is this is Australia's approach to Google, you know, the subsidiary of Alphabet. As you were joking earlier, you may have to start using Bing or some other search engine. Why don't you explain what what's the situation is? Yeah, so Australia, I mean, this has been a long time running, but kind of came to a head late last week. Australia has been trying to get Google to pay for the, the you know, the, the search results that come up with news content. Because in Australia, like most of the world, the news industry has been decimated because all the online advertising has shifted to, to the technology companies, mainly to Google and Facebook. So it wants Google and Facebook to start paying for the links to the news and the little and the little uh, morsels of news that show up when you search for stuff on Google. So what they did was they they've basically pushed for a, um, a sort of a, an arbitration model where the two sides have to sit down, figure out how much the value of news is, and come up with a number. And if they can't agree, then the government will arbitrate it. What happened last week was Google said this whole system stinks, and if it, if Australia moves forward with it, we're just going to shut down search in mm-hmm. Australia. I mean, what what is the what? Where does it stand right now? Are they still in this sort of you know this just looking at each other, finding trying to figure out who's going to be? Yeah, first? I mean, the, look, the, the prime minister of Australia came out and said we don't respond to threats, and we're going to do what we want to do. I mean, the real issue here is look, Google makes some money, makes uh, like three point three U S billion U S dollars, most recent numbers in advertising revenue in Australia, but that's that's a drop in the bucket to Australia. What Google, uh, to, to Google globally, what Google is worried about is that if this model works in Australia, if Australia is successful 
pushing this through, the rest of the world is going to copy it, or at least the Western developed world is going to copy it. And right. that's the real. So what Google is trying to do is dictate its own terms. And as our parent company Reuters has signed up to this new thing called Google News Showcase, um, which is sort of like a tiny little neighborhood in the Google universe. They've said, hey, we're going to spend a billion dollars on news. One billion dollars. Yeah, over three years. And a billion dollars is a nice big headline grabbing number. But even for the global news industry, which has been crushed, it's not very much money. So, but right. again, it's Google trying to kind of throw its weight around and say, here's how we're going to pay for news. We're going to do it this way, not the way you tell us to do it. And, you know, they clearly are scared. I don't, I don't think they launch Google News Showcase or threaten to pull out of Australia if they're not worried about the consequences of the Australian model succeeding. Right. And is, this, is, is it taking on sort of resonance anywhere else? Are, do you see this to other governments sort of saying, oh, we like this Australia model and we'd like to think about it? I mean, is there any is there any sense that 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 someone else might? No, sadly not. I mean, in fact, the opposite. Uh, days before Donald Trump vacated the White House, uh, his administration sent a note to Australia saying, uh, you know, maybe you shouldn't be rushing ahead with this plan. It looks a little dangerous. And you know, Google negotiated a deal with French newspapers on separate grounds because of the EU copyright laws. So it's a little bit of apples and bananas, but um, but they struck a deal with French newspapers. But it's certainly a way to head off any criticism in France or some yes, criticism. Exactly. My view on this is is really that Google's market cap is almost the size of Australia's economy, right? Mm. They They know who they can try and push around. And the truth is like, other governments should be trying to get behind Australia on this. And unfortunately, they're not. Uh, but regulating, I mean, there's obviously we've talked a lot about the backlash, uh, the tech clash, you know, backlash against technology companies. Google and Facebook are fighting it everywhere on things way beyond news. But I think what this, what this particular fight shows is that regulators really need to be aligned on these things because these companies have just gotten too big. And they're, you know, and, they, and they, they're throwing their weight around. Well, it'll be interesting to keep see how this one pans out. The other story that you've written about from Down Under is about tennis. It seems that uh, that despite the most extraordinarily rigor rigorous containment measures for COVID-19, the country has actually been quite accommodating to foreign tennis players. What's going on there? Is that making people crazy in Australia? It's it's definitely sparked a debate. I mean, look, some people are excited, right? I mean, Australians, like anyone else, everyone wants to get back to live events, right? People want to have things to do. People want to go out. They want to, you know, commune. Um, and there is certainly a lot of that happening in Australia compared to the rest of the world. The country has done exceptionally well with, the, with you know, with the exception of occasional outbreaks. We had one in Sydney on the beaches over Christmas. But, you know, for the most part, the, thing has been, the virus has been pretty well contained. But at the same time, you know, you have 40,000 Australian expats around the world who have registered with the government to say, hey, we'd like to come home. And mm -hmm. they can't get back. They're really struggling to get back because there aren't enough flights, there aren't enough quarantine centers. And so you, you have a lot of you know, people stranded. In the meantime, they're opening the borders for the first time to foreigners because nobody who's not an Australian citizen or married to one, like yours truly, can come mm -hmm. to Australia. So, you know, you have 1,200 players, coaches, staff who were led into the country. Some of them are testing positive, by the way. Yeah, um, I saw that. 
Andy Murray did not make it to Australia, but tested positive right before he was supposed to fly to Melbourne and now had to withdraw because there's just no way to make it all with the quarantines and all the other stuff work. So he withdrew from the tournament. So it's really kind of a, you're starting off in a, in a bad way with this thing. Plus you have the players complaining about quarantine, which is not sitting well with a lot of people, as you might imagine. Because, because I mean, let's, yeah, this is the Australian Open. It, it comes in, it's not for another two weeks, right? Because- Starts on February 8th, yeah. Right, and so basically the, the, the athletes have had to come over quarantine, which, by the way, you got to do that quarantine in Sydney, didn't you? I did. I did. How was that? Well, look, did I mean, you, it's certainly... Did you tweet like the athletes about how, how much no, fun it was? No, you know, it's actually fine. Look, I, to a certain extent, I understand the plight of the players in the sense that, look, they're here for two weeks and they want to train, right? They need to, they want to get in playing condition ahead of the tournament. That's understandable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Djokovic went out and said, well, we should have more lenient conditions for our quarantine and we should get houses with tennis courts. And just it's just like not what Australians are interested in hearing. We've spent months in lockdown fighting very hard to contain the virus. So, look, I, I understand it. I, it's why I think this whole thing is they may have rushed too much into this. Um, also, look, maybe it'll be a success. But it's not going to have the economic benefits that the thing normally provides. Well, yeah, you're not going to have the, the tens of thousands of people coming to 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 watch the the matches and spend all that money on beer and champagne and food, of course. But uh, it is it is kind of a you know this is this would be the first Grand Slam of the year. Yeah. So there is a sort of you know it's sort of like we're going to have this anyway. We're going to fight this disease and we're going to yeah. continue. I suppose you're right though, Djokovic and all these guys. I mean, Djokovic is probably not sitting in the three-star hotel outside the uh, Sydney airport that you spent two weeks in. But, I mean, it is kind of a reasonable question. Why Did you not know you were going to go in quarantine in a place without a tennis court? Like, what, what were you thinking? Right. And look, I mean, you've had a lot of players posting videos of them, you know, doing their routines. They're hitting the balls off the walls in their hotel room. They're doing their, their workout regime. Some of them are, are doing great. I mean, there was a great irony of Spanish uh, player, uh, Paula Badosa, um, you know, she was one of the people complaining about the quarantine conditions. I think she might have been whining about the food or something. And lo and behold, you know, a day later, she tests positive. So, look, I think it's frustrating for the players. It's certainly not a good look for a country that, you know, where, again, thousands of people are still trying to get home. Uh, people can't travel. For a tournament that's not going to have the international, it's not even going to have domestic visitors. I mean, I think they've restricted uh, seating, obviously, to like a third of levels. Uh, the local organizing body, Tennis Australia, is burning through cash to cover the cost of it. You know, we'll see. We'll see if it if it turns out to lift spirits. If it turns out to you know the world watches and it all goes well, and um, but they're definitely getting off on a on a pretty bad foot, I would say. Well, you're there in Melbourne, so maybe you can go. Maybe you can show your spirit. Yeah. If I if I can get my hands on some tickets, I will. Uh, <laughs> I will go. I will go root for the uh, for the tennis. All right. Well, good. Thank you, Jeff. Enjoy the rest of your summer in Thank Melbourne. You, Talk to you before it's out. I'm sure. Okay. Take care. That's our show for the week. Hats off to Sharon Lamb in Hong Kong and Amanda Gomez and our producer Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Arrivederci.